All right. Uh, normally, I read the passage that I'm going to preach from first. Uh, I want to say something about it before, about it and about where we've been in the text before I do that tonight. We've been for months now in Matthew chapter 5, uh, going starting through the Sermon on the Mount, and if you haven't figured it out yet, we will be doing that for months to come. Um, because we're trying to do it a piece at a time, and especially in those first several verses where Jesus, verse by verse, issues these blessings that we call the Beatitudes. We wanted to give those due attention, and I think that's been a good thing. It's been a good thing for my heart to walk through those when I'm studying for it and teaching, when I've listened to others teach on it. It's been uh, really life-giving to me. What I want to do tonight, we move out of the Beatitudes. Two weeks ago was our last... uh, part of that section of the sermon, and tonight we move into sort of the body of the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to read the Beatitudes one last time. We're not going to do this. I've read from verse 1 each week that I've preached on a subsequent Beatitude. We won't do that. I promise we won't keep reading the whole Sermon on the Mount up to the point where we are every single week, but I want to do it one more time this week, and here's why, because the Beatitudes... Uh, that we've read and that we've studied and we've come to understand and that I want you to put in front of your eyes tonight, whether or not you've been with us or you remember everything we've talked about, everything else that Jesus says, in, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount and I think beyond, flows out of the vision of the world that he has created in the Beatitudes, the way that he has called us to see the world, to see ourselves, and to see the people around us through his eyes, through the eyes of the Father, that sets up and feeds everything that we're going to see from that point forward. Um, He has spoken this vision into the world. So understand that what he says from that point, number one, flows out of that, those ideas and that way of seeing the world. And number two, he is at some level from this point forward in this sermon, speaking to people who have heard him say that and who understand Everything else comes from that. And so he's a preacher. I'm a preacher. I understand that uh, two paragraphs into a sermon, you don't necessarily agree with all of my assumptions, but I hope that, that uh, as I preach from the second paragraph on, you, I, you do understand that I'm operating by those assumptions. And so everything else I say, I'm kind of saying for this to make sense, you're going to have to follow me through. So let's look at what he has said in the Beatitudes and then move into the text for tonight. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he elaborates, Jeff led us through these verses two weeks ago. He elaborates on that last one and says, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. And then the text we're going to look at tonight says this, you are the salt of the earth, 
But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We're going to focus on these uh, last three verses in this section tonight. The salt of the earth part of this passage is important. I've preached on it before. I want to preach on this tonight. So, um, something that, that jumps out at me, everybody's going to focus on something different when we come on a passage of Scripture, especially one that's as dynamic, I think, as this one is. For me, one of the things that um, jumps out to me is this idea that when you're the light of the world, when you're a city built on a hill, you can't hide. Uh, a little something about me that may be odd is I like darkness. So this manifests itself in lots of different ways. I prefer the night to the day a lot of times. Some of you are wired this way, some of you are not. Uh, this has been a source of great tension in my marriage because my wife is a morning person. I'm a night owl, and we're 17 years in and have it totally figured out. Um, it also means that I am constantly going through my house turning off light, <laughs> lights that she has turned on um, or that someone else has turned on. And some of that's about the utility bill, and some of that is I... Uh, feel like a little bit of a vampire at times, like, ah, so being up here is one of my favorite times uh, with spotlights in my face. Uh, it, but but here's, here's the part that I think really has some significance for me. Uh, I like natural darkness. I like being out in a space at night where the lights of the city, the lights of civilization have little to no impact on my reality. Back in December, we house sat uh, for Brittany for a little while, and my favorite part of being out there is the nighttime because you can see the big city of Bryan in the distance, but it doesn't overpower the darkness that's out there. When I was a kid, we would go camping in the woods of East Texas, and you would get so thick into the pine trees that no light that you didn't bring with you or that didn't come from the moon was there at night, and I love that. Uh, I, as, uh, that was when I was little. When I was in seventh grade, we moved to West Texas. Totally different kind of darkness at night. You get out where there are no towns or cities nearby. Or for me, I lived in a small town, and we lived about three streets from the edge of town. Small town without a lot of, nat a lot of like city lights at night, and so it got kind of dark. And I could walk just a few blocks from my house at night, go through a barbed wire fence, and kind of get into real darkness. And... Uh, I love that. Now, uh, in West Texas, that was a little bit dangerous because especially in the summer, the rattlesnakes come out at night. Um, they are nocturnal like me. And uh, if you didn't have a flashlight, that could be dangerous. And there were times that I would wander through that West Texas darkness with my flashlight so that I wouldn't get bitten. And then there were times where I would turn my flashlight off and not just because I... Um, didn't like the light, but because I got scared. Because I realized at some point that I'm far enough into the darkness that everything bad out here can see me more than I can see it because I'm carrying this beacon of light, unnatural light. 
around. And so it created a vulnerability for me. I think sometimes we read a passage like this and say, you're the light of the world, and we think strength and brightness. And one of the things, one of the first things that I think we have to acknowledge about this instruction and this call on our lives is that in the darkness, light makes you vulnerable. When you are the light, you're exposed in a certain way. You can't be hidden in the same way that a city on a hill, a city that's up above everything else, has a certain strength of looking down, but it also can't be hidden from anything coming from all sides. Um, When there is a light in the darkness, it stands out. If you've ever, I, I, I saw a reference to this in a movie recently, I can't remember which one, uh, if you've read All's Quiet on the Western Front or anything like that, um, and you have some, some sense of trench warfare, what, I'm curious if any of you know, what's like the most dangerous, when you, when you were in trench warfare, when you were in a trench at night and things were quiet, what's the most dangerous thing that you could do? Smoke. Why? Because you've created a light and smoke in the darkness. Also, you've created it right where your head is, um, which is something you don't want to do when you're trying to hide uh, in, in the darkness. You can't be hidden when you're in dark and you create a light and the things that come from the light. So we as the church, as God's people, if we're going to be light in this way, we can't hide. We can't be hidden. We're the light And at times, the evil in the darkness won't like what the light does because the light exposes things. Uh, Tuesday is Valentine's Day, and uh, some of you will celebrate that and some of you will not. Uh, When you go out on a date, you often go into a restaurant and the lights are dim. Any idea why the lights are dim in a restaurant, also dim in a club? Any idea? Harsh light shows people what you actually look like. So the dimness is there to minimize the exposure of the light. This is, I'm pretty sure, why sometimes when I'm talking to you, not up here, I see people looking at me funny and thinking, oh, he's better looking than he looks up under those (laughs) spotlights. Light exposes what's really there. It exposes in us and in the world corruption and falsehood and ugliness. And so if we're the light, we expose in the world, the light exposes in the world what's wrong, what's broken, what's ugly. And when exposure happens, uh, the darkness or what is hiding in the darkness isn't always happy about it. Now, this starts with us, of course. For us to be a light that exposes darkness we subject ourselves to the same thing. If, if we're the light of the world, and we're going to come back around to the last verse, which punchline here is we're only the light of the world to the extent that we reflect the actual light of the world, right? But if that's who we are, we're close to Jesus, the true light. And so whatever's broken and ugly and, and needs to be exposed in us is going to have to be exposed first in us. We can't hide our own ugliness from God or from each other or for people around us, and that will seem unfair at times Um, in the way that that plays out as we go out into the world and try to be light in the world. It's going to be a common conversation. Well, what about you? I see something broken in you. 
That'll seem fair uns- uh, at times because our slightest hypocrisy is obvious if we're carrying around the light. But that's okay. That's part of the journey with Jesus is this revealing of our brokenness and sin so that we can be healed, so that we can participate in the healing of the world around us. This is why over time for me, and I think many of us have been through some part of this journey, I became suspicious of, of a certain kind of Christianity that I was around a lot, which did its very best to hide and minimize flaws of individual people or of churches or whatever. I'm suspicious of a perfect church or a church that works really hard to make sure you see it as mostly perfect. I'm suspicious of anyone who claims to be a Christian but resists any show of weakness or vulnerability. That's not because I'm arrogant in my, hey, check out, we figured out vulnerability. It's still really, really hard. I still resist it in my own life, but I am prone to be suspicious of anyone who push it, pushes that away, who says, I follow Jesus, but who has a wall up where you can't see any hint of the cracks in their soul or their life. And that's different. Culturally, we're taught to sort of venerate um, and follow the strongest leaders to join ourselves to the shiniest organizations. We talk when we follow someone or when we get excited about someone or being a part of something. We talk primarily about what's so good about it. And that's not wrong. But we're taught to sort of resist the exposure of anything that's broken. And I think this passage, though it affirms that leaders and groups of Jesus followers are the light of the world, I think it actually cautions us against that cultural attraction to the appearance of perfection, because those who really have the light will be affected by it. They'll be revealed to be imperfect and human, and they'll carry the strength not of themselves, but of the source of the light, um, who, which is Jesus. So part of what's happening, I think, in the world right now, if you look at sort of the bigger dialogue, or let's just zoom it down primarily to the United States, the bigger dialogue about the state of Christianity and how people who are not believers are supposed to respond to what they see of Christianity um, is, I think, part of Christianity. And this includes me, this includes us, and this includes people who are not exactly like us. Um, But part of Christianity is being exposed. (laughs) There's some hypocrisy that has just sort of functioned for a long time in the church and in Christianity that's, that's coming out. The church is having to, and Christians are having to wrestle with, we've always said we care about truth. And then there are these moments when the leaders that Christians are following don't seem to care about truth or any number of a list of things that Christians have, have claimed to care about. That dialogue, it may make you uncomfortable for me to talk about it, but that's what's going on out there. That's what people who are talking about Christianity are talking about. How authentic is our handling of the light? Are we willing for it to expose in us what we say it is meant to expose in the world around us? That shouldn't, it shouldn't happen that we say no. It shouldn't happen that we're picky about what the light exposes. It doesn't matter what your social or political preferences are. This can happen in all directions. It has happened in all directions. But whenever it happens, the church should acknowledge and repent and call others to repentance 
for what the light has exposed to be sin in us or to be inconsistent in us. We should never be comfortable justifying what the light reveals to not be consistent with who God is, with this vision of the world that Jesus has created in the Beatitudes. So that's one thing that the light does. It exposes. And I'll talk in a few minutes about how I think we are to participate in that part of being a light. But I also want to be clear that the light, the exposure itself that the light uh, creates is meant to push us toward hope, which is the ultimate point of the light. Light in the darkness is meant to create hope, especially for people who are lost or weary or broken. Evil will see the light and attack, but those who are in need and vulnerable see the light and are drawn to safety. And I think a lot of what the church has done, uh, rather than allowing itself to be what it is, which is the light, and, uh, and focus on that light, drawing in those who are looking for the light, because they're there, there are people who are broken and who are wandering in darkness and who are looking for hope in our world around us. We keep going to people who aren't interested in the light and saying, hey, look, what do you think about this light? And they all have their own little lights. And it's not that we shouldn't be a part of those conversations with people, but we're, our job is to be the light and to let it draw in those who are looking to come out of the darkness and for that to be our focus. That's what I think Jesus calls us to do here, to turn on the light and draw in those who are in need, those who need hope. So, what does it mean for us to be light? How do we participate in this? How do we embody what Jesus calls us to do here? I think the essence of that is relatively simple. In verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So, the way that we're light, in the simplest terms, according to Jesus, is... We do good works. We do things that, that put goodness in the world and call people's attention to that goodness and call people's attention to the source of that goodness, which we'll get into. But to know what these good works are, I think, again, we have to, number one, be, on the, be in on the vision that Jesus has laid out. So when he says people will see your good works, it's not just a generic hey, try to do something good today. That's not a bad, that's not bad advice. <laughs> but it's rooted in something. It's rooted in this vision of the world that he's given us in the Beatitudes. He's saying, so that people will see you live this way, embrace these kinds of people, uh, bring peace into the world, do the things that I'm telling you are good, are, this, are, are rooted in our good father. People will see those things happen. So that's the first, I think, way that we understand and know what these goods, good works are is that we have taken on the vision that Jesus has cast here. Um, and second, and a, a little deeper than that, is we understand the nature of God and his ways. Not merely what Jesus has said in the Beatitudes, though I think that's a lens through which we see everything else. But we know the way of God from creation forward. If you look ahead... Uh, the, ne the very next thing Jesus says after this and what we'll get into next week is, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it. 
There's a sense here in which our understanding of what it means to do the kinds of good deeds that create light in the world, are, those, those things are deeply rooted in the way of God as he has spelled it out in the scriptures all along. Certainly Jesus um, is becoming the law in a sense, and he is transforming the way that we live and understand the law. And he's becoming the voice of the word of God here, but with his voice, he's upholding scripture as, as we've had it up to this point. And that's a big part of the purpose and work of the church over the last 2,000 years, to look together to Jesus and make sense of the way that he reveals and upholds in this moment in which we're living. And I think central to knowing what good is and what good isn't as it relates to this is how you're the light, People see your good works and they respond. Central to knowing what good is, what, what is good and what's not good, and doing what is good and what's not good is that understanding of who God is and how He's created us to live as it's found in the scriptures. So then Jesus says this so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is a part that um, no matter how much we've heard, we don't necessarily like. We may not like it. I've talked about this before. I think this phrasing of God's glory and doing what we do to give God glory can be difficult for people. It became difficult for me a number of years ago. It sort of kind of lost its meaning because it got used so much, and I wasn't sure exactly what it meant, and it felt sort of ethereal and, and otherworldly. Um, and I, so I understand that struggle. We also chafe against it uh, because... It immediately takes us from, hey, you're going to do good works and people are going to notice you to, but the point of it is not to notice you or for you to get any credit. It's for them to look at God and for him to get the credit. And no matter how well versed we are in the Sunday school answer of, yeah, that's what it's supposed to be like, we like to get credit. I don't know anybody. Um, I shouldn't say that. I have an aunt who I don't think likes to get credit for anything or be noticed at all. Uh, but most of us like to get some kind of credit for what we do good, what we do that's worthwhile. Um, but what we're told here is that the purpose of our good works is for people to see them and give glory to our Father in heaven. And the reason why that's relevant, why that is true, is because I don't. the light is not me. I am not the light. And I'm the light of the world only to the extent that I reflect the true light of Jesus. The overused but very accurate metaphor in this conversation is the moon has no light of its own. The moon lights up the night sky, especially at certain times of the month. And it, it appears to us, no matter how well educated we are, that it has no light of its own. We forget that when we see it glowing. We don't think about the sun when I tell my kids, hey, come outside and look at this moon, I'd, I'm not saying to them, come out and look at what the sun is doing, right? I'm saying, come out and look at the moon. But the truth of the matter is that all of the light that it gives off is a reflection of the sun. We have no light except that that comes from Jesus. And if this is offensive to you, and it is, I think, offensive to all of us at some level, we all have an ego and we like to think we have something to offer, but if we're truly offended by this, I think we have to really reconcile why we think we on our own create light. 
in the world. The message of the gospel is good news. It's news. We, here, here's why I want to say this. I think some of us, even within the faith, wrestle with our view of God and our understanding of why does God want to take all the credit for everything. Um, and uh, so we chafe at some of, of this kind of language. But the message of the gospel is good news. The message of the gospel is all the light that we need is available to us. All the light that we could possibly need is available to us. But most people don't reject the gospel because they reject that idea, the idea of light or light being available. I think most people reject this insistence that Jesus is the source of light, and they prefer to maintain some assumed ownership or control over the goodness and light and not cede it all to Jesus. And I, ultimately, I think that is a resistance. When it, when it crops up in my spirit, it's a resistance um, to me being exposed as always needing light outside of myself and always needing a goodness that I can't manufacture for myself or that no one in my home or the best people I know can offer me unless they're receiving it from the source of our existence in the first place. And that's where I think this becomes a rub for us. So we're all offended, I think, at some level by the suggestion that we have no light but Jesus. But my encouragement here is to listen through that bad news that you don't have light that wasn't given to you in some, in some way before uh, from outside of yourself. You aren't a light unto yourself and even when you do good, it's not to put you on center stage or demonstrate your strengths. Listen through that bad news long enough to hear the good news. There's light enough for all of us, so that shouldn't matter as long as there is light for all of us. And when we look to that light, we're freed from the need to look perfect or to look strong or to look like we have the ability to muster up a light that's going to change someone else's life. And we're enabled to just receive and reflect the light of Jesus, to do good works that allow others to see through those good works the source of those good works, the true light. John, uh, Jesus addresses this himself, and John addresses it also both in the Gospel of John. John says this in, in John chapter 1, In him was life, him being Jesus, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is just a case study in everything I just said. John the Baptist, who was a great preacher, who was calling for justice, who was calling for repentance, who was full of good works. The story here is that he wasn't the light. He came to make the way to point people toward the light. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is how we become what Jesus says in Matthew 5, we become. We become the light of the world because in following him, we have the light of life from him. And this is the heart of all of this. We're the light of the world when we reflect Jesus. 
And that, doing that, exposes what is dark, what's not good in the world, the point of which is rescue from darkness for the world, not condemnation. Jesus said it very clearly in John chapter 3, I came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Part of that is exposing where we feed on and look for life in places that aren't life, that aren't connected to the source of life. So the de- getting into the detail of, of this a bit, um, of this idea that light both exposes and offers hope. Paul, uh, because I think this is important, I think this is how we, we move everything that I've just said, everything that we see obvious in this part of Matthew 5 from, yeah, I mean, that's what we've always known and heard into, okay, here's what we do with our lives uh, to respond to that. Paul says this in Ephesians 5. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The point, I'm going to go back a screen to where it talks about exposing darkness, exposing the deeds of darkness and such in the world. The point of this, again, is not shaming the world. And this is where the church has gotten it wrong again and again is, I mean, come on. If we have the opportunity to expose what's wrong with someone else, I'll take it, right? And if I think God is telling me to point out what's wrong in in someone else, then by all means, let me assume the platform and do that. We're just wired to want to do that kind of thing, and we've done it poorly all along. But the point here is not shaming or condemnation. And we know this because, as I pointed out in John 3, Jesus says so. The point is rescue. At all times, the point is rescue, is making much of God and drawing people back to redemption with God. So that means at times we do have to talk about difficult things that the world calls good, but that God does not. We can do that with grace and with seriousness, but we have to do it. And to run from it is, at some sense, withholding the light and the role of the light. But let me also say this. Uh, I think we hear that if you grew up like me, in a mostly white evangelical church, um, then you're going to be prone to hear that kind of talk and to think of very specific things. Okay, if our, if our job in the world is to expose the darkness, here are the things that I've been taught in my life are wrong. And so our job is to go and speak that those things are wrong. Um, and that's true. Uh, but let me also say this. This this work of the church, this work of Jesus' followers in shining a light on the darkness and exposing what's broken and what's not from the Lord is bigger 
than shining a light on the sins of personal morality the church has spent the last 50 years, that, that our part of the church has spent the last 50 years focusing on. Um, and here's why I, I want to be sure that we understand that, because I think our, our vision for what it means to expose darkness and the works of darkness in the world is just far too narrow. It's not that everything we've been taught is wrong. It's that if that's all we hear and that's all we're doing in trying to shine light in the world, then we're missing it. So, for instance, when people are soberly trying to shine a light on injustices and pains and wrongs in the world, we have to be ready to embrace that as part of, exposing, as part of the exposing work of the light too. as just as important as what we're sort of prone to think about in this. If someone in any way is exposing the fruitless deeds of darkness so that they can be replaced by the fruit of the light, which Paul says is goodness and righteousness and truth, they're obeying the call of Jesus to be the light. And it's just as important as pointing out what's moral and what's not moral in the world. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, sometimes I think we're made uncomfortable by this work. I I talked about it then in the context of peacemaking. And I think we're uncomfortable with with this for a few reasons. Number one, sometimes the sins that this causes us to have to, to talk about or to affirm as, yes, that's light shining in the darkness. That's exposing the deeds of darkness. Sometimes the sins being talked about are potentially indicting to us. And we're defensive and don't agree why someone sees it that way, agree with someone seeing it that way or understand why they do. Sometimes it's because the darkness they're pursuing is, as I said, different from what our part of the church has focused on as sin. So we see their pursuit of that as some sort of social agenda um, or political agenda and not as a kingdom issue. And those are, that's a false, it's a false separation. There are, there are such separations, but the assumption that someone pursuing something different than what I automatically understand as sin is not a kingdom issue is not a safe assumption for us to make. Sometimes we struggle with this because we just don't have the proximity to the impact of the sins that they're trying to expose that they have. These are real issues for our part of the church, and I think we can't go on with our heads in the sand. I used the, the example three weeks ago of, of racial reconciliation and racial injustice, and I'll mention it again, not to beat it into, the, into you relentlessly, uh, but because I think it's a, a prime example of what I'm talking about and because I think it really, really matters. <laughs> uh, we need to, if you grew up in a predominantly white evangelical culture that talked about certain kinds of sins, and especially if that talk at times, and I'm going to be really frank here, caused you to, for instance, look into black culture and make judgments about why are there so many unwed pregnancies? Why are they listening to rap music that's so foul and so profane? You need to understand that there are black Christians who you may not know who will agree with you about every issue of morality who are by that standard, conservative evangelicals who will look at you and say, can I tell you the things for for 30 or 40 years that I've been looking at the white church and asking why in the same way that you're asking those questions about my culture? 
we need to understand that that's part of the light shining in the world, coming to understand that there are other things that need to be exposed besides the things that have become comfortable for us to say that's what the light's supposed to expose. The call of Jesus is, as I said a few weeks ago, to be with those who are not at peace. And here, to be with those, especially our brothers and sisters who are eager for goodness and for God's light to shine in dark places. And certainly there are those who are not at peace whose goal is revenge or chaos um, or whose means for, uh, for advancing their agenda are inconsistent with the light and the goodness of God. We're not compelled to affirm every act of resistance or every move um, of people who are not at peace. But I do think we absolutely have to be willing to recognize when sometimes our uneasiness is that the light is now shining on us or that it's shining into less familiar places that demand that we listen and learn. Because again, the point of Jesus, the, the point of us following Jesus is not that our version of goodness be upheld and protected. The point is he is the light and we should all want as much light shining in the world as possible. The point is that God's light shines on earth as it is in heaven. All of this is moving us toward the way of earth being transformed into the way of heaven. And the instruction here is to identify and understand what pleases the Lord and to join up with that, period. Sometimes that's going to feel affirming and exciting to us because we're going to have learned and matured. And so looking at what pleases the Lord and being that light in the world is going to be exciting to us. Sometimes it will expose areas of sin or just simple ignorance in us and compel us to follow others who have a clearer vision of the light in that way. And this is where we have to be very careful that we don't become like me when I find myself wandering around in the West Texas desert, unwilling to turn on the light, afraid of what will happen when those who don't like the light are drawn to it and see it. Being the light of the world sometimes will make us stand out in ways that people close to us don't understand. It will make us vulnerable. But if you haven't felt vulnerable often in following Jesus, or in being the light, I challenge you to ask whether you're really willing to be that vulnerable light in the darkness, or whether you've become too comfortable and maybe even avoid the light at times when it might mean exposure and change for you or risk for you as you become a target for people who don't like the exposure of the light or for the way that it unsettles the status quo. The way of Jesus is by definition vulnerable. Jesus let go of his status as God, his completely safe status, to come and join us in a decaying human body and to die. And we're called to walk that same road to the cross with him. He turned the light of God on the powers of darkness and exposed their corruption and their false claims to power. And he tells his followers to do the same. He went to those who were in the darkness looking for a light and said, God is with you because I'm with you. And he tells us that we no longer live for our own sake, but to pour ourselves out to be light to those in darkness by being with them also. 
We live to be the light of the world. And the true light, as Jesus said, is him. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We're the light of the world only when we reflect Jesus. So this week, you're called to go reflect Jesus in the world. I challenge and encourage you to find out, as Paul says, find out what pleases the Lord, to do his good works and to, find, and to shine his light in the darkness so that, Jesus says, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven so that people will be drawn to the rescuer, which is to say they'll see God's goodness alive and well in the world and they'll respond by looking with gladness, not with fear, but with gladness and gratitude to the one who came, yes, to condemn darkness, but not to condemn them. The one who loves the whole world so much that he gave his life to redeem and renew us all. That's not easy. That challenge, that task, the places this will take us is not easy. But here's both the good news and I would say at some level the warning that you want to be on the side of the light, wherever the light is. John tells us, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light wins. We don't have to fear stepping into the light. We don't have to fear the vulnerability that it creates for us. And we should want to be on the side that wins. The light wins in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we sang and as uh, I prayed before, I ask that you would make our hearts believe that life with you is better. Whatever it challenges us to, whatever ways it changes us, it's better. And I don't have all of that figured out. I can't stand here and tell everyone, this is what you should do. This is how you should be the light. I believe you've created each of us intimately and personally, and you have a role for each of us to learn and understand what you say is good and to carry that into the world. So enlighten our hearts, give us vision for that, and root us deeply in you and who you are and who Jesus is and in your kingdom that's coming into the world. Let me pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.